Hi, I'm Mick Cronin and this is Watch Your Cause, a podcast in which I interview a variety of guests about a cause that is close to them, something they feel passionate about. I want to start a conversation to educate, inspire and shine a light on causes around the globe that can or are having a significant social impact. But here's the kicker. Each guest will nominate the next and become a chain that will lead from my very first guest to my last and ultimate guest of season one, Barack Obama. Got your attention? Thought I might. Hello there and welcome to episode 17 of What's Your Cause. In my last episode, I took the opportunity to do another bit of a recap. It's been the holiday season here, so I've been having a break. So I uh, decided to, to do something where I recapped um, uh, some episodes and I, I focus on episode 7 to episode 11. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed going back and listening to them recordings and, and listening to them conversations. So I hope you enjoyed it. But back to interviewing some guests. So in this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Maaza Sion. Maaza is an Ethiopian feminist who has been working in the field of global health for close to two decades. As Global South convener for the People's Vaccine Alliance, Maaza campaigned for health equality while building partnerships with and between civil social groups in Africa, Asia and Latin America. Before shifting her efforts to the COVID-19 response, she was focused on HIV treatment and research programs in East and Southern Africa, where her work focused on the lives and needs of the most marginalized and underserved communities. In 2023, Maaza transitioned to Oxfam in the United States, where she serves as a senior advisor for alliances and strategic partnerships. In her role, Maaza continues to highlight the effects of coloniality and racism on all of our systems as she builds connections and works towards more just and equal world. I found this conversation to be so educational. I felt that you kind of know stuff through that COVID kind of time. And, and as we came out the back of it, sometimes we probably push it, push it to the back of our minds with, with good reason because it was such a challenging time. But what you really get from this is, is a real clear understanding of how there just was not equal access to medicine and vaccinations and how lower income countries and were being treated at this time. And it is staggering to think that this went on. And it's also staggering to think that, you know, back in 2001, which Maaza will share as well, HIV treatment was facing something very similar. And it really begs the question around public health versus profit. I ain't going to go into it too much because Maaza does such a wonderful job um, of talking to this. So I really do hope that you enjoy this episode. Um, I'm sure you're going to take a lot away from it because I know I did um, in the conversation. And with that, here's episode 17 of What You Call. Maaza, welcome to What's Your Cause. Thank you so much for having me, Mick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we just jumped straight into it. So, um, Maza Sium, what's your cause? Well, I would say, you know, the, the base of my cause um, is really fighting inequality. You know, for me, um, it started with health rights and fighting inequality in terms of access to medications and access to you know, health, basically, um, which is a human right. Um, but now as my career has progressed, I feel like my cause is also fighting inequality more broadly and fighting the idea that things happen by chance, really helping people to understand 
that the challenges that we face are, as a society are unfortunately not a glitch in the system, but sort of the way the system was created, and we have to fight to change that system. Before we delve into the, the many areas and where you're fighting to, to you know, change that system as well, reflecting back on a little bit of where it all kind of started for you and how you kind of took this path into where you are today, can you share that with us? Yeah, you know, I was born in Ethiopia, um, in East Africa. I grew up in West Africa in a country named Cote d'Ivoire, in a city named Abidjan. Um, So I was always sort of an outsider in all the places where I lived, you know, a migrant and an immigrant. I eventually ended up at school in the United States. But even before I arrived in the United States for school, you know, I kind of came of age during... The, the start of the HIV epidemic. I remember as a, as a young student in school seeing this Time magazine with a big cover, you know, about HIV on it. So, you know, growing up in Africa at that time, um, it was very rare to not be impacted by HIV, um, but it was also a time of a lot of stigma. And that was something that really stayed with me, that it was something that, you know, people would not speak about, yet there were folks dying of this mysterious thing. So I think that that was one of the seeds um, that planted an interest in in public health for me. I eventually, when I was in school um, in the United States, was able to do a semester um, in Central America. And while I was there, worked in a shelter for adolescent mothers. So these were young girls who um, had had children, you know, as teenagers and out of wedlock, many of them because of abusive relationships, you know, there were very sad stories of uncles and stepfathers, et cetera, having, um, you know, raped these these girls who ended up in the shelter to give birth and to to give up kids for adoption. And that was another another experience that piqued my interest in public health, too, and kind of, you know, um, social issues and sociology and gender issues. So those were the two ways that I ended up in public health, I would say. You obviously, in your work, then started, um, as you progressed, you started to walk back um, more in, in Africa and around with the, with HIV and, um, and other, I suppose, going, we can lead into a little bit of like, you know, vaccinations and so forth as well, but really around that medicine and, uh, and, and, and I suppose it's the equal access to it. Yeah, you know, I, um, I'm old enough to remember a period when uh, in Africa we did not have access to ARBs, so antiretrovirals, which are the drugs that, you know, allow people to live with HIV for a very long time. And there was about a 10-year period when those drugs were available in the United States and Canada and Europe, but were not available for people in Africa because they were so overpriced. And, you know, during that period, I would say almost every family and especially East and Southern Africa lost people to HIV. You know, it was so stigmatized. It was basically a death sentence and it was very difficult to get access to treatment. So that was something that I was very um, aware of, you know, and there was a lot of um, this was even before, you know, social media was super active. But we were aware of the fact that, you know, pharmaceutical companies were suing South Africa for trying to access cheap antiretrovirals. And this was, you know, during a period when South Africa was sort of the darling of the world. You know, Nelson Mandela, here he was, you know, he had won a Nobel Peace Prize. He was the first democratically elected leader of South Africa. Despite that, you know, 40 pharmaceutical companies 
took him to court in order to prevent South Africa from accessing cheap antiretrovirals. And during that period, I mean, probably millions of people died of HIV, you know, as in the global north, you know, people were living long lives with the virus. In Africa, we were left to basically die, you know, that we were not worthy of having access to this medication. Um, and, you know, the irony of that is eventually working on treatment programs myself after having watched um, even U.S. government officials. I mean, I'll, I'll go back to, you know, that the, the lawsuits that I mentioned in South Africa. Eventually, because of the work of activists, you know, those pharmaceutical companies were shamed into submission, basically, and um, were shamed into stopping their lawsuits. And eventually, South Africa, you know, had one of the largest and most successful um, HIV treatment programs in the world. Um, but, you know, during that process, I also watched um, a government official from the United States say in public that it was not worth providing treatment to Africans through this large um, U.S. government program um, because Africans did not have access to watches and we did not know how to tell the time. And whenever I tell the story, you know, I, I remind people that it happened in 2001, you know, it wasn't, you know, sort of when my, my oldest uncle, you know, maybe got his first watch, you know, in the 1940s, you know, 2001, here you had an official from the U.S. government telling people that it wasn't worth giving Africans antiretrovirals because we would not be able to adhere to our medication. The reason he brought up the time was saying that, you know, you have to take these medications at a certain time of day. And here you have a whole continent of people who don't know how to tell the time and what's the point in giving them the medication. He eventually did apologize and said, you know, if I offended anybody, I'm sorry. And then ironically, you know, the these these programs, and this was the, the program um, instituted by uh, George W. Bush, the PEPFAR program, which was huge all across the continent and provided treatment to, you know, millions of people. And I eventually, you know, by then had finished um, public health school. And three years after this, um, this man, Andrew Nastios from the U.S. government said that Africans, you know, it was the return on investment wasn't worth it. Three years later, I was working in Rwanda on, you know, a, a program that had an adherence to HIV medication that was probably higher than that in the U.S., you know. So that was also a big wake-up call um, about you know, how people value lives, you know, and this is a story that you see coming up over and over, that the value of life is so different based on, you know, where you live, where, you know, the, the kind of luck of the draw of where you were born. It's kind of mind-blowing when you talk about that, because I feel that, you know, um, obviously, with your work, you are in, you're in this, and you understand this, and you know this, um, but to, to many people, even in across the world, they wouldn't have you, they wouldn't have heard this. Yeah. This was actually going on. And as you said, in 2001, like not going back as well. Um, going back then a little bit, and I'm sure this is where it will bring us forward again in, in, into, you know, um, the COVID times and all that. When you look at the pharmaceuticals and so forth as well, how is that like that? that it's more like that public health versus profit. Yeah. Like, so where was all that accountability and and? Also, can you touch again a little bit on them 40 countries? Because I did read about that with Nelson Mandela um, being sued. I found that absolutely mind-blowing as well. You know, he was looking for universal kind of health care and, and so forth and, and being sued. But one of the leading countries was the U.S., you know, in that as well. What, what, where was the public health versus profit? Like, what was that argument and why was it being, like, 
on one side, public health was getting put aside for what I would I would presume, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of profit being made, which is leading to why some of this resistance to change in legislation and so forth to be able to help public health universities. Yeah, I mean, the, the power of, of pharmaceutical companies is really astounding. Um, and, you know, that that could be a whole kind of podcast series, I think, all on its own. You know, I have some, some colleagues and, and comrades who have written really amazingly about that and the power of pharmaceutical companies over the years and how much, you know, their power has been centralized and the amount of effort that they spend lobbying government officials, um, you know, with funding in order to be able to, to get them on side. Um, and we really did see that as well, you know, with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, where you had pharmaceutical companies who received billions of dollars, you know, in support um, in order to produce these vaccines and then immediately turned around and used those vaccines for profit, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, those those 40 pharmaceutical companies that that uh, sued Nelson Mandela in the 1990s, I would say that, you know, what many people in the health field, myself included, were probably most devastated about in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic was that we thought that that era, or I foolishly thought that that era was behind us, you know, that we had learned from the HIV epidemic and what happened then, and to have it happen again in the same exact way um, you know, what are we talking now? You know, 20, you know, 20, 25 years later was what was really devastating and what I think, you know, really radicalized a lot of people to realize that it is not a glitch in the system. The system is working, you know, as as it is intended. And even things like, you know, intellectual property laws were drafted, some of them, by pharmaceutical company representatives, you know, so the power that they have um, is really astounding. And they obviously were um, blocking negotiations um, for emergency waivers um, with the World Trade Organizations on the intellectual property. Yeah, it's on the rules for COVID-19. Is that correct? Exactly. And that was a big part of, you know, what I worked on in 2021, um, you know, with a group called the People's Vaccine Alliance, which was pushing for, you know, this, what we, it's called the TRIPS waiver. So a temporary, um, you know, halting of inter intellectual property rights for companies in order for governments to be able to have access to COVID-19 vaccines, to be able to, to make their own. And these pharmaceutical companies, you know, especially um, Moderna and Pfizer, BioNTech, you know, the two big U.S. ones, Pfizer with BioNTech in Germany, as I said, received billions of dollars in government assistance, you know, and I think for people who are not aware um, of how fast or how slowly, rather, vaccines are usually developed, probably don't realize how unusual it was for the COVID vaccine to be developed so quickly. You know, we heard about the, the virus probably in December 2019 for the first time, you know, COVID-19 was declared a, a pandemic on March 11th of 2020. And then we had the first person get vaccinated by December of 2020. I mean, that's unheard of. And the reason that it happened so quickly was because there was so much money invested. I don't know if you remember, there was, you know, Donald Trump at the time, who was the president of the U.S., you know, spoke about Operation Warp Speed, you know, it was really like throwing billions of dollars 
um, into this development and researchers really collaborating with each other. I mean, obviously they were building on work that had already been done, but much of the work of those pharmaceutical companies was done by um, with government support. So yes, now when the vaccines were, were um, ready and available, there were some mechanisms put in place to, in theory, allow poorer countries to have access first, you know, by sort of pooling vaccines. But the pharmaceutical companies and rich countries, I have to be honest, it's also the rich countries who jumped the queue, you know, and did not allow for those pooling mechanisms to work and for low and middle income countries to have access to vaccines. And of course, these companies preferred to sell to the highest bidder and not go into the pooling mechanism. So, you know, what what I saw during that period in fighting for the intellectual property waivers, fighting for, you know, technology to be transferred, because then a lot of countries were like, give us the technology. Once, you know, these IP, IP intellectual property rules are waived, and if you share technology with us, share patents, we can make the vaccines ourselves if there's a shortage of vaccines, you know. And these countries and rich countries and companies refusing to do that. So basically, as you said earlier, prioritizing profit over people and people's lives. And again, basically deciding who gets to live and who gets to die. You know, so what it meant is that people in Latin America and Africa, essentially also in Asia to a certain extent, but mainly in, in Africa and Latin America, were left to die while people in the global north had access to vaccines. And during that period, you know, within the first year of the COVID-19 vaccines being rolled out, there were nine new billionaires that were minted in the pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, they were um, and there was a point at which, you know, some of my colleagues crunched the numbers where they were making a combined, you know, one thousand dollars a minute, you know, because the vaccines were the most profitable, you know, medication, you know, known in history. Um, I think there was a stat that said something like, you know, the Pfizer vaccine was the most profitable. And I'm, I, as we're talking, I'll, I'll try and find. Yes. So here in 2021 alone, Pfizer's vaccine generated thirty seven billion dollars, making it easily the most lucrative medication medicine in any single year in history. And during that period, refusing to allow people in poorer countries to have access. It's astounding, isn't it? To think that like to, to hear that is 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 astounding um and for like countries to to have to watch people die um as well would it be fair to say that in some of the countries as well the people that are working on the front line weren't even getting access to vaccinations as much as they should so i'm thinking of probably the lowest vaccinated countries whether across africa and so forth probably in southern uh, global um southern global where where people even on the front lines struggling to get like the, um, the, the required vaccinations while dealing and working um, with people um, who have zero vaccinations and who are, who are dying at a, at a massive rate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that people probably in the UK and in you know, North America um, had access to their boosters before nurses and doctors had access to their first vaccines um, in, throughout you know, much of Africa. And what is particularly frustrating is that during that period, you know, there were um, conversations with, you know, the heads of the two largest companies, you know, Moderna and Pfizer, where the CEOs were claiming that, you know, Africans were vaccine hesitant. You know, there was one period when um, Bourla, the president of, of Pfizer, was saying, you know, well, Africans are anti-science and, you know, everybody knows that they're, you know, um, 
vaccine hesitant as compared to the U.S. and to Japan, which is patently false. You know, there is no evidence to show that people in Africa are any more. I mean, there's vaccine hesitance, you know, everywhere around the world, but there's no evidence to show that people in Africa are more hesitant than people in Austria or Australia or, you know, now in the United States, there's so much vaccine hesitancy. So that was, you know, that reminded me of the conversations that we were having in 2001. You know, there were really echoes of here you had this U.S. government official saying no point in giving, you know, antiretrovirals to fight HIV to Africans because they don't have watches and they can't tell time. Here we were 20 years later, you know, the this billionaire um, sitting in his, uh, you know, his luxury luxury yacht or wherever he was taking the call from, you know, saying that, uh, you know, one of, you know, the reason Africans are not getting vaccinated is because they're vaccine hesitant um, while hoarding, you know, countries are hoarding vaccines and companies are refusing to share IP, um, to contribute to pooling mechanisms and to share technology so people can make their own vaccines. During COVID um, and I think it was such a strange time for, for it was such as it was it was a, a incredibly strange and challenging time for the world and I think I like I'm I'm in Australia Irish background so you're kind of keeping an eye on what's happening back in my home country of Ireland but also how we were approaching it in Australia and one of the things that you know when I um, knew I was having you on as a guest and and I was like doing a little bit of research and I was listening to you speak as well one of the 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 things that was front and center for me as well was at that time, I remember having a lot of questions around like, how is Africa coping? And the reason why I was asking that question was there wasn't much commentary or narrative coming um, the way of the world, I felt, in regard to this. So people probably like going, oh, I'd say it's not great, but no one was actually giving any kind of responsible commentary on it and saying that this is actually what is happening in in Africa at the moment because like when I saw some of the stats that were coming out of and I think it was like out of 19 countries in the world that had one five vaccinations 15 of them were in Africa and then I was looking at the fact that the people couldn't afford even for the rapid tests the cost of a rapid test to get that wasn't there and then it goes into where I'm going with this is how was this being reported on so like official deaths versus excess deaths and stuff like this as well. Can you speak a little bit into that from that time when you were at the People's Vaccine Alliance and you were walking through this? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really good point about the, you know, the test. The irony is after all the fighting that people did to try and get access to vaccines, the same exact struggles we were having around vaccines then the companies instituted about diagnostics and treatment, you know. So when people in the in the North were taking, the Global North um, were taking Paxlovid, you know, even that to get the IP waiver for Paxlovid, which, you know, people can't argue that that is as difficult to make as a vaccine. You know, for vaccines, they were saying, oh, my gosh, but Africans can't make these vaccines. Latin Americans don't know how to make these vaccines, you know, even though there were, you know, at least 100 companies that were ready and saying, if we have the recipe and, you know, some tech transfer and know-how, we'll be able to, to make these vaccines. So, and, you know, that case cannot be made, you know, for a pill, but there was still this hesitation, you know, to, to share the, the, the IP to be able to make, make those pills. And, you know, what is really um, can sort of enrage, enrage people is that those rules would be waived if the situation was in the global north, right? We have seen cases when things have had to be waived if it's something that's needed, 
you know, in Europe or in North America, then those rules, those rules are bent. So yes, so it was very difficult to get access to tests, very difficult to get access to treatment. And that's why even the question of the true toll of COVID, you know, there were some times when people were saying, well, you know, Africans are not suffering from COVID that much. It's a younger population. We're not seeing that much COVID. Um, But then you'd have people in in African countries saying, but the morgues are full, you know, so if we just haven't been able to, to test people to confirm that they have COVID, it doesn't mean that COVID does not exist in these countries. So, you know, the official death toll of COVID by the end of 2022 was 7 million. But the data that I've seen, um, some of it by The Economist, which is, you know, by no means sort of a, a left wing, you know, magazine has said that um, in terms of the, you know, the excess deaths, as you mentioned, you know, they compared the deaths in one year to what would have been expected based on the year before. So they are suggesting that at least 18 million, but maybe closer to 27 million people died globally um, of COVID. So, and in many cases, the excess deaths were much higher in countries in the global south where there was not the di- diagnostics available to confirm that people had actually died of COVID. Um, but just because you know you can't test to show that does does not mean that the person didn't die of COVID. So I'm really interested in um, if you look at the the countries who are of a higher income. Um, who would have a higher vaccination rate and they were up in the 90s. Then you look at that and you flip it and you look at the countries that would probably be of lower income and they'd have lower vaccinations. Was there any examples where you, um, in the work that you were doing, that you saw a significant shift in, say, some of the countries who had extremely low rates where they were able to actually increase the rates? And if you did, what was the reasons for it and what was the lessons that could be learned there? Yeah, you know, I think over time, um, once people in the global north had been vaccinated and received their boosters, and then some of the systems of distribution improved slowly, then there were some countries that were able to to raise their, their vaccination rates. I would say, you know, my experience working on HIV treatment was also relevant there. I remember seeing numbers that um, Rwanda, for example, had a, a relatively high vaccination rate compared to the rest of the continent, right? And I remember when I was working in Rwanda on HIV treatment, people were very surprised that, you know, the adherence to medication in Rwanda was also very high. And I think if you're dealing with a smaller country, you know, where everybody speaks the same language, that makes a really big difference to kind of public health programs, right? And also countries where systems are really already quite rigid, you know, whereas if you have a country like mine, you know, Ethiopia, that is um, 120 million people with 80 languages, you know, um, or even a country like South Africa, which is much smaller than Ethiopia, but 11 official languages, you know, South Africa is an outlier and did, you know, comparatively better than, you know, some other countries because it's a wealthier country than, than most of the rest of the continent. But I would say, you know, R- Rwanda um, was an exception as it, as it often is with those, with those types of things. And I think, you know, over time, as the distribution improved and, you know, as countries in the global north, as I said, you know, got their, their boosters, then things slowly turned around in a lot of countries. But, you know, as I say that, I also want to point out, you know, we spoke about pharmaceutical companies 
um, I want to just point out that many of the rich countries are also to blame here because, you know, they hoarded vaccines. Even a country like Canada, which is seen in, you know, in the global framework as being quite progressive compared, you know, to others, had at a certain point five times the amount of vaccines that it would need to vaccinate its entire population, you know. And many of these rich countries were the ones that were blocking at the World Trade Organization, you know, the, you know, the, the waiver that we spoke about, the intellectual property waiver that South Africa and India led and was supported by 100 countries. These rich countries, because the pharmaceutical companies, you know, are you know, in their countries that they are, you know, tied to sort of this capitalist order, refuse to also let these waivers go through. So I just want to point out that, you know, as much as we talk about pharmaceutical companies being at fault, the wealthy countries are at fault. So as we say that, you know, the system eventually changed and more vaccines were rolled out, you know, across the global south, it really meant that, you know, we had to wait for the global north to be vaccinated and done sort of, you know, let's have the meal and then we'll give you the leftovers, you know. So if, you, if millions of people have died, you know, that's fine. You know, we'll get to you um, eventually. Um, so, yes, that, that, that would be the answer to my question. There were, there were some outliers, but also as kind of, you know, supply, the supply constraints kind of lessened and as distribution, you know, finally improved um, across the world, then we did see some changes. What does it do for the trust you know, of the people of society in Africa and, and these other countries across, you know, Asia and so forth as well. Like, what must it do when their life is is lessened like that, or is is you know is is said that it's not as important as as these lives over here as well? It must build so much resentment and anger and and distrust in 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 the world. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so glad you say that, Mick, because that was really the the underlying feeling of rage, you know, especially for those of us who worked in public health. And as I said, you know, are old enough to remember the times when we were working and trying to get, you know, antiretrovirals um, to to the African continent. To see this still happening 20 years later, um, you know, is really devastating in terms of trust, you know, a lack of global solidarity really a recognition that your life does not matter. You know, basically your life has a has a different worth and really, um, yeah, just a, a sense of of dismay. Um, and I learned, you know, for the first time um, during the, the pandemic, um, the term necropolitics, you know, which one of my my colleagues briefed me on. But, you know, it's the use of social and political power to dictate how some people may live and how some people may die. So it's not just the right to kill, but also to expose people to death. And that's really, you know, what what we were seeing here. So, you know, that's sort of like a very sad and angry note. But what I will also say is that um, it made me feel like we have to avoid the crisis going to waste. You know, we have to make sure that we use this pandemic as a portal. And that's not my term. That's a term that um, this amazing Indian writer, Arundhati Roy, um, uh, a turn of of phrase that she used actually very early in the pandemic, before we even knew how bad it would be. In April 2020, she wrote this amazing piece um, 
called the pandemic as a portal. So how do we turn this into something different, you know? Um, and now that we know, you know, even those of us who maybe were naive and optimistic, you know, it's so clear that the system is designed to consider some lives to be more worthy than others. Um, we see this in public health. You know, we see a lot of talk about global solidarity and, you know, what it really made me feel is, you know, that we don't want charity, we want justice, you know, like it's not about people waiting for scraps from the table, you know, from from rich countries. It's about justice and making sure that, you know, the system is changed in the future because there will be another pandemic for sure, you know, especially with climate change and, you know, countries getting getting warmer and, you know, more viruses um, likely to to emerge. Um, and it really has radicalized people, as I say. A lot of people are um, have been so enraged by what the continent, uh, you know, I can speak for Africa, but I know many of my Latin American colleagues felt the same way, are sort of radicalized and fighting to change the system for the for the future. And I will just say, you know, speaking of climate change, we also see the fact that in terms of climate disasters, um, you know, and we call them natural disasters, but, you know, they're not natural, you know, it's sort of like the way society and humanity sort of responds to a disaster, you know, to an event is what makes it a disaster. You know, this is kind of governed by how unequal society is, you know, and the sad thing is that the people who are least at fault are often the ones that are most at risk, you know, when it comes to to these these climate events. So we're seeing the same things in terms of, of climate as well. Um, some of my colleagues recently wrote a report saying that 91% of the deaths caused by climate disasters in the last 50 years have occurred in what we call developing countries, you know, so it's really the people who are least at fault are the ones that are most at risk. So we see it in public health, we see it um, in the climate justice movement. And yeah, I mean, it really has affected people's trust and a sense of no longer wanting to, to just wait for, for charity, um, but really fight for justice. Is it also um, stemmed to um, a, a, a rise in probably more um, civil society groups and stuff like that as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the reason why people in South Africa got access to antiretrovirals is because of, you know, even back then, activists and civil society leaders before the time of, of Twitter, you know, where they, people could speak to each other across the world, you know, even at that time, um, they were, were really putting their lives and their bodies on the line in some cases refusing to to take treatment you know there were some people who would have access had access to treatment from rich friends or you know friends in the US and they said you know we are not taking it until all of the people who are living with this virus are able to take it so i would say that um the civil society activists of whom there are so many you know they're intellectual property lawyers human rights lawyers doctors you know, other civil society people. Um, there's a lot of good work by journalists as well, investigative reporters really digging up stories. And yeah, I mean, civil society was really at the forefront of the fight um, for ensuring that the, the story of the lack of access to, to COVID vaccines and medications was, was put, you know, under the spotlight. Through all your work, um, and I'm sure it was with the People's Vaccine Alliance, through everyone else that you work with as well, how difficult was it at the time to be walking in the space and trying to do what you do? And then also the, the, the universal kind of commentary on COVID um, and all the conspiracies and everything else that go anyway. Was, were you able to like 
just push that to the side? Or were you finding that you were consistently having to deal with that true, um, you know, trying to get the, you know, the, the fight for, you know, more of that um, equitable access? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the, the irony of, of many of the, the COVID conspiracies and stuff is that, you know, as people were saying, you know, that Africans are anti-science and vaccine hesitant and all of that, many of the, the conspiracies were actually coming from the United States and, you know, and from from Europe. Um, so that's always something that's like an underlying theme of like the irony of, of you know, these, these various situations um, and I think, you know, when you work in, in public health, um, especially not being kind of a, a provider, I think it's one thing if you're a medical doctor or a nurse and you're sort of, you know, have one patient at a time or 10 patients, you know, in a queue waiting to see you. With public health, you sort of have to, you know, see the bigger picture, but also, you know, remember the stories of the people whose lives were turned around by access to something. I remember early in my, you know, career when I was working in Rwanda or even before that, before I went to Rwanda and I was working on an HIV treatment program in New York in a, in a marginalized community. I mean, seeing people's lives transformed. You know, when I lived in New York, there was one, um, one woman whose family dropped her off at the office where I worked and she was emaciated and they basically said, we don't want her to die in our, in our apartment. It was very stigmatizing and dropped her off. And to see her a year later after she had access to treatment, sort of thriving, you know, and there were many cases like that that I that I saw um, in Rwanda as well. So you kind of hang on to that. And, you know, something that I always um, try and keep in mind, you know, I heard a, a commentator um, in the U.S. Uh, refer to this as sort of like thinking about being part of an orchestra. You know, everybody has their sort of role, like not everybody plays the same instrument. You know, like if you make, you know, play the cello and you say to me that I should play the cello and I'm like, but I don't know how to play the cello. I prefer to play, you know, the violin or whatever, you know, not everybody needs to play at the same time. You know, sometimes you can take the lead and I can take a, you know, a seat um, and kind of like sit back because it is, it can be quite draining and, you know, enraging and, but everybody has their strength and it's sort of remembering that not everybody has to be playing at the same time. You know, sometimes there are some people who are in the forefront and there are some people who really want to be out there and breaking things all the time, you know, out there yelling. And there are other people who prefer to be sitting at their computer, you know, doing some in-depth research or interviewing or so everybody has a role that they that they can play. Yeah, it's a great great way of looking at it. So with your work at the moment, so in, in Oxfam, and what's the, what's the key kind of, um, you know, work that you're doing at the moment or that you see, you know, into 2024 and beyond? Well, I think, you know, the transition is really thinking about um, inequality more broadly, as, as I said at the beginning, you know, um, having health be part of that, but really working with a group of people with a whole variety of different skills. You know, so right now I work with economists and human rights lawyers and others who are all focused on tackling inequality as a whole. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, you know, a stretch for me. It's, it's different. It's sort of like learning new things and thinking about, um, the fact that the same systems that I saw in public health are also echoed in sort of like the global financial architecture, you know, like who gets loans and, you know, the fact that, um, there are many African countries that are paying more in interest on their loans than they are on their health systems, you know? That's the, the point to which we've gotten where 
people are countries are saddled by debt, you know, and unable to provide health services and educational services to their populations. Um, and just thinking about, you know, inequalities more broadly, and that over and over, it's about like, you know, the fact that rich, powerful people get to decide, you know, as we said about public health, you know, get to decide who lives, who dies, who has access to services. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, reading the news every day is always sort of feels like, you know, um, everything that I read in the news is something that I feel like I should be doing something to address, you know, and very often there is that underlying current of this this um, some lives matter more than others, you know, so whether you think about migration, you know, I, you know, I saw something the other day that in, in 2023, I think it was 2,500 people died crossing the Mediterranean to, to get to, to Europe. And those are just the people who, you know, who we know died. And I, I often think about the fact that that there's the only reason why that's not me is just pure luck. You know, when I look at those boats, there's so many people from the region that I come from, and there's, you know, it's just sheer luck that that's not me on one of those rickety boats. So working for an organization um, that focuses on inequality sort of, you know, helps you highlight those things on, on a daily basis. Maz, before we go, um, it's, been, it's been beautiful talking to you. I was so excited to speak to you because I just knew this would be a very different episode. And, and the beauty of what I do is I get to, to meet people and speak to people that I would never have access to, but also would never get to hear and, um, of the amazing work they do, but also on, on really important items and topics in the world that, um, that you get to hear a, a different commentary on um, from someone who's been working within it. I just want to thank you so much for bringing us through that as, as well and, and for the amazing work that you, were, you would have been doing and are still doing um, to make the world a, a better and fairer place um, for everyone. But there's one thing that we do that I do is that every guest nominates the next guest and uh, so you don't have to do it now but um, obviously if you want to think about that and think of someone that you would feel would be good for me to have a chat with and they can share their cause or cause um, that they're passionate about or working with Ian. That would be amazing. I will do that. Thank you so much for having me, Mick. It's great to be here with you. Um, yes, I've listened to your show and I really enjoyed it. So thank you for including me. No, pleasure was all mine and I look forward to uh, staying connected um, as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please feel free to leave a comment or follow me on Instagram under Mick Cronin. This podcast was produced and edited by Mick Cronin.